It's Stan Grant here on RN. Today we explore the question of forgiveness. In a world of suffering, how can we forgive? World-renowned theologian Miroslav Volf probes this question in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, a theological exploration of identity, otherness and reconciliation. Hailed as one of the 100 most important books on religion in the 20th century, Miroslav Volf sets us a very big challenge. Can we embrace those who have committed even the most heinous crimes against us? Not only should we, he says, but we must if we are to live in a world of peace. Miroslav Volf is the Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale University Divinity School in the United States and Director of the Yale Centre for Faith and Culture. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. It's wonderful to be with you. Of course, when I think about embrace and I think about reconciliation and faith and forgiveness, all the things you write about, They are pressing questions right now with the war in Ukraine. Let me ask you the hardest question, perhaps. Is it possible for a Ukrainian to embrace a Russian or forgive Vladimir Putin? It's possible. But at this moment, uh, I take it, it would take a miracle. And maybe what is necessary at this moment is first to resist Vladimir Putin in his attempts to act in inhuman ways as he has acted. There's time for resistance and there's time for embracing. In fact, I would say in resistance, there can be embrace and only when we resist, when resistance is appropriate, will the embrace be in the end genuine. So it is an iterative process, isn't it? It isn't just a case of saying there is unconditional forgiveness, although, of course, that is one of the teachings of faith, but it must also be a process of forgiveness or embrace. And I think whole reconciliation process is a process. It's not a one-time act. It's a story of which we are a part, and it's a story that it has both internally in oneself, kinds of ups and downs. Uh, I want to forgive at one moment, but at the next moment, I think, what am I doing? I just can't. This is impossible. This is not just. But it is also a process in terms of way in which one relates to another person and way that other person might be prepared to receive an embrace and receive it in the right kind of way. When it comes to questions of faith, what complicates this particular conflict as well is that it is being framed in many respects as a war of faith. Vladimir Putin has spoken about this as a holy war. Patriarch Kirill, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, have spoken about Vladimir Putin as a gift from God. Weapons are blessed by the church. So the role of religion itself is central to the conflict, isn't it? And I think we need to uh, critique that type of use of religion for purposes that are fundamentally at odds with the Christian faith. Obviously, this is not a unique case. In many situations in history, wars have been fought, Christians have been fighting wars, and they have found in Christian faith inspiration for fighting those wars. And in particular, that happens when 
The conception and understanding of identity is tied to belonging to a particular faith, and even more so when that identity and that belonging is rooted in a space that is considered to be holy. As is true in this particular case, where Kiev and the space which is Ukraine is in certain sense a cradle of uh, mm. Russian civilization. We had similar situation in former Yugoslavia, in the case of uh, Serbia, in many other places it is so as well. And those kinds of conflicts then end up being the most difficult ones because religion is then overlaid, not just with power, but with identity stabilization, with history, and with, with the very self who I am and on to which I feel I need to hold it if I am not to lose myself. And indeed, uh, there is faith sits at the core of the resistance as, as well. We have seen Ukrainians singing hymns and praying as part of their resistance. It, again, it's a difficult question, but where is God in a conflict where both sides are laying claim to God? Where does God sit? You know, the other faith uh, which sees itself tied to identity and power and is a resource in the conquest uh, of the other must be considered, I think, when one considers life of Christ as a false faith, as a faith that has been in some ways bastardized. There are elements of it that are genuine, but it's itself is functioning as the faith ought not. Resistance to evil is what is a genuine part of faith, but that resistance too can be skewed, can be almost like a mirror image of that which it is resisting. We have to be also careful how we use faith and in what ways do we find inspiration in faith in resistance to evil. And there a care has to be particularly special. Because in this particular case, then justice, the right, is on the side of the person of faith. And yet that faith itself, that struggle itself, has to go on with a view of love towards the enemy, even the enemy who is committing atrocities at this very point. And of course, that is the, the message of your book, Exclusion and Embrace, isn't it? Is that we need to be very cautious of the exclusion and where that comes from. You wrote, the result of exclusion is a world without the other. The price, rivers of blood and tears, only losses on all sides. But when we look around our world, we see a world riven, don't we, with exclusion, with hardened identities that pit us against each other. We do indeed, and over the past 10 years in particular, rise of uh, nationalism uh, worldwide has hardened those identities and has made those identities also bellicose. And it's very hard to find now the common ground, some kind of a middle ground. It's very hard to find people who are willing to extend their arms in expectation of something like even a small embrace. I personally believe, and this has been my experience of faith and my journey of faith, that it is precisely in opening one's arms toward those who wish us ill and wanting and desiring that embrace that we underscore and that we celebrate our very humanity. And of course, part of that, and you have written, is to love your enemy as you love 
your neighbour, which is, again, a fundamental teaching of Christianity, but with a war raging. What does that look like? How on earth can you possibly love the person committing atrocities against you? You love them by resisting them. (laughs) You love them by condemning what they're doing. So my understanding also, for instance, of such an act is forgiveness. And of course, when somebody does someone, wrongs someone, forgiveness comes into play as a mode of love. Indeed, you have said, haven't you, that forgiveness is the boundary between exclusion and embrace. But can we have forgiveness without justice? I think we cannot, and I think we cannot have forgiveness without justice, because in the very act of forgiving, I am underscoring the validity of justice. I cannot forgive someone without telling that someone implicitly, or without blaming them that someone implicitly, that they have done something wrong. If I tell you, I forgive you, you will tell me, well, wait a second, Uh, what have I possibly done to you? I don't even know you. How could I have done you any, any wrong? And as soon as I initiate the step of forgiveness, there is justice in play. What turns out to be the case is that I don't let the claims of that justice count against you. But nonetheless, I affirm what the justice demands. And so I think in the heart of forgiveness is the concern for justice. And we need to be concerned for justice. I think on the other side too, when I forgive, that forgiveness needs also to be received. Is Vladimir Putin likely to receive that given what we're seeing right now? Vladimir Putin, it looks to me right now, has only war on his mind. And at this point, uh, he is as some of us can experience, many of us can experience on a small scale, have become captive to the evil that we are perpetrating. We have entered into a space where we are not our own in a terrible sense of that word. And that's what I think uh, is happening with Putin. Hopefully he will come to himself and into his own. And when that happens, if he is to receive forgiveness, he will have to receive it by repentance. What does a resolution that potentially leads to a reconciliation look like in this case? Does it mean Vladimir Putin hauled to The Hague to face war crimes trials? What does a reconciliation, a just reconciliation that could lead to forgiveness look like in this conflict? In the kind of the ordinary sense of forgiveness, reconciliation requires that a person repents, that is to say, distance themselves from what they have done. And second, it requires restitution. So Desmond Tutu is famous to have said there's no future without forgiveness. But he has also said, if you are forgiven, you can simply continue to benefit from the evil deed or wrongdoing that you have committed. And so in that sense, it requires a certain form of restitution. And I I think forgiveness is a very sturdy kind of a thing and is not, in my judgment, incompatible with discipline, with a kind of shaping the other person and containing the other person so that they can, in fact, come to themselves. 
And I, I think something of that sort will need to happen if reconciliation mm. is to occur. Miroslav, these are not just academic questions for you, of course. You have lived this experience, what people are going through in Ukraine right now. You have lived in the wars of Yugoslavia, wars informed by identity and faith. And indeed, that question was put to you, wasn't it? Could you embrace your enemy? You had a particular answer. What was that? You know, my answer was uh, my, my teacher, Jürgen Moltmann, one of the great theologians of the last century, still living today, has asked me after I've delivered lecture on reconciliation and theology of embrace, even of those who have committed uh, wrongdoing. And he asked me, well, but can you embrace Chetnik? Can you embrace that evildoer who has ravaged your own country? A Serbian uh, nationalist fighter. A Serbian nationalist fighter. And I had to say, honestly, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, I ought to be able to. And I think this struggle between what we deep down know that we ought to and what we are unable to do, that's in a sense a struggle of faith. This is not a form of faithlessness, but a struggle of faith. The entire book, Exclusion and Embrace, is really a kind of a testimony of my own struggle to think through how I might do what I knew needed to be done. And that is the great challenge which we face, not to give in to our incapacity, but stay with our inability, recognize it, and make small steps in direction where Christ calls us to go. You are listening to RN Summer, where we bring you some of the best conversations from the year. My guest is Miroslav Wolf. Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale University Divinity School in the US and Director of the Yale Centre for Faith and Culture. Miroslav, I'm going to take you back to your own journey of, of faith and it is tied very much to the idea of suffering, isn't it? The suffering of your father who found faith on the death march in concentration camps and then your own journey through conflict to try to find a way to, to live in the world with all of its evil and yet its hope and its love. What was it in your father's experience that set the course of your life? You know, my father's story is an extraordinary one, who was 18-year-old kid conscripted into Croatian army, which was on the side of Hitler, though he himself was actually a, a socialist. And as he was conscripted in that army, he, he tried to flee to the partisans, uh, to desert to the partisans, was caught and almost lost his life in the process. And when liberation of Yugoslavia took place, nobody wanted to hear the story that he had to tell. He had association with the Croatian army. He was put on a death march and 1,000 people started that march in his group. By the time, three months, two and a half months, I don't know exactly the time, into it, only 300 were left and he was one of them. But he was full of rage, full of rage against God, full of rage against, against the partisans, those with whom he sympathized because he as an innocent person had to suffer tremendously. And it was, I think, inability to 
kind of handle the rage that was in him, incredible rage against the situation that somehow pushed him in the direction of actually acquiescing to the crazy idea in the middle of that inhumanity that God actually is love. Mm. I don't know how it happened, but he tells me when it happened, his whole world changed. He said nothing changed outwardly. Everything stayed the same. And yet, inner transformation happened, and he was, in a sense, free of this internal anger and therefore free to live his own, even in this narrow, constricted space, to live his own humanity. That was the victory that he celebrated. And when I think about it, I'm always deeply, deeply moved by how faith this very gentle plant can grow under such an incredibly harsh circumstances and become something really beautiful. And and you had a similar experience yourself, didn't you, where you, you faced interrogation and the threat of, of long-term imprisonment. What did you find in that moment in your faith to carry you through? A similar recognition to your father? Yes, so this was years later when I myself was conscripted into army and entire unit was organized on spying on me, trying to prove somehow that I am the enemy and was the enemy of the state. And it was a narrow space. It was a struggle to keep my soul pure in those circumstances. And by the way, we were talking about Ukraine. I have a former student and friend of mine who's now in Ukraine working as a minister. And one of the first things that he said when he and I had an interview, he said, one of the most important things for me is to keep somehow my soul from being besmirched, uh, sullied by the evil that is all around me and directed against me. That's what I was feeling as well. At the same time, I felt the call of humanity, of imitation of Christ, to somehow want to embrace that person. And after I was released from the military, I sought to kind of find where he was and so that I could speak to him. I couldn't find him. He was a member of Secret Service of former Yugoslavian army. And so I imagined an encounter with him and reconciliation with him because I needed a sense of forgiving him and imagining him as having received that forgiveness as well. I wanted him in my imagination as healed rather than Mm. as simply an enemy. And and yet so much of the bitterness and rancor and resentment in the world is passed to us through memory and history. You've spoken about this and written about this, about the ability or the need to try to break the chains of history, to, to remember rightly. What do you mean by remembering rightly? You know, there are many elements of remembering rightly. My own work on this was triggered by this sense that we often have and that we hear often publicly, namely when something horrible have happened, we will never forget Mm. or I will forgive, but I will never forget. Indeed, I I think it was once said that to forget is to bury the victims twice, that we need to hold on to the memory. Exactly right. At the same time, I have noticed that when we remember, 
our memories often serve to motivate violence against others. You can say that it's the memory that has been a motive behind, in case of Serbia, attack on in the beginning of the war. You can say also that it was it's the memory that, in a sense, motivates Putin in his action, where he spoke about the sense of identity and connection with, with history. So this nefarious side of memory is what was then uh, started worrying me. And I sensed it in myself. I was remembering and remembering turned into being then into kind of uh, feeding the, the sense and need for revenge. And to me, that needed to be undercut. And that's what I think about or describe as remembering rightly, can, rather than simply remembering. Can anger and resentment, though, have its place, that resentment and anger can be a virtue that can inspire us to action? You could make a claim, couldn't you, that what we saw in the United States with Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights movement, um, seeded in in love and forgiveness, but emerging out of a very deep and righteous sense of anger. I agree with you. The, The sense of anger as a kind of emotional stance of standing for justice and against wrongdoing that has been perpetrated. That's a completely not just understandable, but but actually morally responsible stance. So um, righteous anger seems to me right. But at the same time, there are forms of anger that consume one and that seek to release themselves in excesses and that paint the pictures of the other in such a way that I am no longer able to even consider them as human and worthy of any embrace. And it's this kind of anger that we need to struggle against. But how do we not become misled? What does it mean then to remember in such a way that I can direct my agency, that I can direct my emotional stances in such a way that this other person is not dehumanized, but that I can struggle for the right while affirming their humanity and seeking to do what we are all called to do for one another, namely to love each other. When when we talk about love and forgiveness and remembering rightly and forgetting, it does raise the very difficult question about absolving the perpetrator, that in effect, the perpetrator gets off too lightly. How do we not, in the effort to forgive, rush to absolve the perpetrator? I think that's a very important question. One is, I think the perpetrator needs to receive forgiveness. And receiving means repenting. Receiving means also restoring. Restitution is a very important part of the whole process of forgiveness. But when it comes to memory, my sense is that we need to write kind of remembering in order to motivate us to act with justice and with seeking forgiveness. But That memory is really an essential element of forgiveness itself. I cannot forgive what I have not remembered. And the sense of forgetting, and I almost like better the term not remembering, Mm. (laughs) because forgetting has something active in it, as if I decide, okay, I'm going to forget now. But that doesn't seem to me either plausible that I can just do that or in any ways healthy. But 
what, what I have in mind at the end of a successful journey of forgiveness, and that's applicable primarily in interpersonal relationships, there is a certain kind of forgetting, and that's forgetting that is almost like not holding the wrongdoing as part of our operational memory. It can be still on our hard drive, and it, I'm sure if we have a moment and we want to reflect back on, on it, we can always remember that. But when I see the face of the others, I don't have a wrongdoer stamped on their forehead, right? And that is predicated on successful process of forgiveness, reception of forgiveness, and healing. And once that happens, then I think we can be in a space in which we can act toward one another in a kind of reconciled way. Of course, if uh, some wrongdoing happens, I will be tempted and probably will have right to reach back to my hard drive and look a little bit there and remember and therefore protect myself, protect others from possible harm that comes. But if I simply insist, I'll forgive, but I'll always keep that in mind as that when I relate to you, I really, in my judgment, have not forgiven fully. I have always reserved unforgiveness, and that is um, sometimes necessary, but hopefully in many cases, not useful mm. and harmful exercise. Miroslav, why is identity so important to us in the world? You've talked about identities that are porous, where we open ourselves up to each other, and yet at the same time, we hold on to those things that are important to us. In the secular liberal world that you've outlined and critiqued, what is the role of faith as providing the glue for those porous identities and building a world of forgiveness and love and peace? Well, that's what I would hope, that Christian uh, churches, uh, other communities of faith, that's the kind of role I hope that they could have. And unfortunately, there is no foolproof <laughs> a way to, to live one's, one's faith. That's part and parcel of faith because it's part, part and parcel of us as free human beings. I wouldn't want faiths that cannot fail in many ways, right? They would be a stifling armor that would be in, inhumane. So the failure of faiths, in a sense, is built into them. And we have to look into forms of faith that contribute more to such failure. And that's the job of folks like myself, like the theologians, to think about those things, or maybe saints to live faith in a way that is compelling to us. At the same time, I think faiths have resources. Faiths have resources to anchor us in something that is unchanging and yet transcendent, transcendent in the best sense of the term, something that we cannot fully grasp, but something on which we can rely to move into the future so that we can live with hope toward what is coming our, our way. Uh, how does one live a hopeful lives? That's one of the great challenges mm -hmm. that we have because hope is not living towards something that I know exactly that it's going to happen. Hope is being open to the darkness of the future, which I don't know, and nonetheless being able to move toward it with confidence. And that kind of stance is stance of hope. Mm. Miroslav Wolf, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you again for giving us your time. 
It was wonderful to speak to you. Those are important topics, and thank you for wrestling with them. Miroslav Wolf, the Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale University Divinity School in the US and Director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. His book, Exclusion and Embrace, A Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness and Reconciliation. Thanks to Mudita Dias, Hong Jiang and Hamish Camilleri. I'm Stan Grant and look forward to your company on the Religion and Ethics Report next week. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.